Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War history group. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website, westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 10th of October, 2022, and this is episode 273. On this week's podcast, I talk to historian and author Catherine Quinlan Flatter about the German army in the closing weeks of the Great War. Catherine spoke to me from her home in Ecklingen in Baden in Germany. Cathy, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, yes, thank you for having me, Tom. Um, well, I studied German, international relations and international history at university, and I focused on the Third Reich. Uh, but after that, I spent a very long time working in industry as a technical author and software trainer. And um, Then about nine years ago, my personal life took a different turn and I decided I wanted to do something different, something I'd always wanted to do, which involved writing and history. Well, we were just coming up to the centenary of World War I, and I thought it would be a good idea to write something about the impact of, of the First World War on our little town of Ettlingen, which is a small town in the northern Black Forest. I went to our town archive and I asked if they had anything, and the archivist gave me the, the field post, the World War I field post, of a soldier from Ettlingen who was called an officer called Tor Kiefer. And uh, the archivist set up a desk for me in her room. And I went in two or three days a week and I read the field post, as well as some diaries of the time written by people from our town. And back then, well, I thought I'd really hit the jackpot because I'd never read anything like those letters. I felt as if I was really in the trenches with the soldiers. The descriptions and the details were so real and they were nothing like you found in history books or anything I'd seen in films. So I decided to write a blog which included um, my translations of these letters and the archive also helped me by advertising locally for people to come forward with their stories. And I, met, I really met so many people who gave me photos and personal stories of their relatives, of their great uncles or grandfathers uh, in some cases, fathers or uncles, um, to put on my blog. And immediately this blog became very popular. And in 2014, so what, barely one year later, I won what is called the Web Culture Prize in our city of Karlsruhe, which is the neighbouring city, uh, which was a, really a major honour for me. And I, I was on TV and everything. Uh, well, after this, I started to write articles for newspapers here. And I've also done a couple of World War I exhibitions and I've written chapters for book compilations here in Germany. For this talk, I've, um, I've used uh, my research from um, these letters, from this field post, uh, the diary entries, newspapers of the time, and also the regiment's histories. So the regiments basically each wrote their history during the 1920s mostly. And these books are, are like sort of gold dust today. They're very difficult to get hold of. They cost a fortune, but I do have a few. Um, and uh, they're very interesting. They're like a diary of, of the time with lots of photos of what the regiment did during the First World War. And all translations into English for this talk um, are my own. So we're going to talk about the military situation uh, in the trenches on the Western Front in October 1918. So what was that situation um, and what was the German army doing at that time? 
Right, so um, after the peace treaty of Brest-Litovsk had been signed with Russia in March 1918, many of the German soldiers who had been positioned at the Eastern Front were then relocated to the Western Front. Uh, this meant, of course, that there was additional German military at the Western Front, but of course, America had joined the Allied forces by this time, and they were very fresh and not exhausted from four years of war, like the Germans, uh, plus they have new weapons. The Germans had started Operation Michael on March the 21st. That was the major German spring offensive. And they started, they start with an incredible intensity of artillery fire, over 2 million shells in the first four hours. And also they deployed poison gas, as well as thousands of mortars. But despite all their efforts, and although they broke through the front at, at several points, the operation is ultimately a failure. And the last German attack really took place uh, between July 15th and 18th, and is more or less success, um, also unsuccessful. At the end of all of these operations, the German empires lost almost 700,000 men, while the Entente powers have lost over 850,000. However, the German losses cannot be replaced, while more than 100,000 US soldiers are coming to France every month. The first day of the Allied counteroffensive takes place on August the 8th and becomes known as the Black Day of the German army. Uh, for the first time in the war, the German troops actually start to surrender here in large numbers. And this phenomenon basically increases over the next weeks and months. And this is when the German command realizes that the only course of action is to withdraw the advanced troops, but the enemy, so the Allies, simply follow the retreat which leads to heavy battles along the whole of the Western Front right up to the end of August. Um, the Entente's counter-offensive to, uh, to this German offensive is called the 100 Days Offensive, and it lasts right up to the ceasefire of November the 11th. Well, by this time, it's, it's obvious to the Armed Forces High Command, which is basically Ludendorff and Hindenburg, that the front can no longer be held. Um, in one regiment's history, um, uh, an officer I found called Major Albrecht Ritter writes in his regiment's history in 1926 about the time, and he says, since the major failures of August 19, August 1918, the fate of the German Western Front appeared to be sealed. Quartermaster General Ludendorff, representing the Armed Forces High Command, has a meeting on September 29th with the Kaiser in Spa in Belgium, where the Kaiser is now living. Here he proposes that an immediate ceasefire request be sent to President Wilson. He also requests that the government be parliamentarized, which means that a parliamentary system of government is implemented in the German Empire. And sub 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 subsequently, several laws are changed and new laws are passed in Germany under what is called the October Reform. This decision, decision sorry. This decision basically underscores an admission of military defeat, as well as paving the way for proclaiming the Republic in Germany, which takes place on November the 9th. On the same day as uh, Ludendorff is, is visiting the Kaiser on September the 29th, Bulgaria, who is also with the Central Powers, also signs a ceasefire with the Entente, as they are unable to continue following the collapse of the Saloniki Front on September 15th. And on October the 30th, the Ottoman Empire also capitulates, followed by Austria-Hungary on November the 3rd. The Entente powers do not agree to negotiations for a ceasefire with Germany until November the 5th. So at the end, Germany is as left holding the fort, as it were, 
in a war which they had joined in support of Austria-Hungary. So we're going to look at what happens to Pacific German army units during the month of October. So could you start by telling us who those units were, where they were drawn from in Germany and where exactly they were located at the beginning of October 1918? Okay, so there's a few regiments I looked into. The first one that I researched was the RIR 249. That's the Reserve Infantry Regiment 249. That's because this was Tor Kiefer's regiment. That's the young officer who I was, uh, the field post of who I was reading. Tor is a young doctor from my town of Ettlingen who joins up with the Red Cross straight away in August 1914. And shortly after this, he's drafted to his regiment, which is the RIR 249. This uh, regiment belongs to the 75th Reserve Division, which is part of the Prussian army. So even though he comes from right down here in Northern Black Forest, he's in a a Prussian army regiment from up in the north, northeast. And this whole regiment, which uh, consists of the 249s, the 250s, the 251s, they basically set up at the Eastern Front right in 1914, where they remain for most of the war. And then they are transported to the Western Front in December 1917 after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is signed. After this, I looked at the story of Tor's younger brother, Felix, three years younger than Tor. He joins up to a Bavarian regiment, um, which is called the RIR-16, the Reserve Infantry Regiment 16. And the claim to fame of this regiment is that Hitler also fought in this regiment. (laughs) I haven't found any records of, of Felix meeting up with Hitler, though. Um, the RIR 16 only fight at the Western Front, so they're there all the time. And thus Hitler actually also only fights at the Western Front, which I think is interesting. Hitler had no Eastern Front experience, which I just find quite interesting. Um, while uh, Felix is later moved to the Eastern Front in a different division. He unfortunately is severely wounded many times and released from the army in 1918, early 1918. So on my blog, um, you can see that the soldiers coming from this town serve in many different divisions, even though they all come from the same town. So some examples here, uh, uh, Musketeer Ernst Schmidt, he joins the RIR 30, deployed only at the Western Front. So many, many soldiers only fight at the Western Front. Then we have Unteroffizier Frank Metzger. He's in the Infantry Regiment 27, also fights at the Western Front. And Landsturmmann Adelbert Weber serves in Infantry Regiment 114, which also fights on the Western Front. Eduard Waldmann is one of the first soldiers to fall from our town of Ettlingen on August 20th, 1914. And he dies in the first battles in Alsace-Lorraine. So at this time, Alsace-Lorraine is part of Germany. But uh, at the beginning of the war, the French came over Uh, And the first skirmishes actually occur in Alsace-Lorraine, even actually before the declaration of war by France. (laughs) That's quite a sort of interesting aside there. Uh, One of the most important regiments in our area, which is an absolute elite regiment, is the first, what's called the first Bardisches Leibgrenadier Regiment 109, which is the personal regiment of the Archduke of Baden. Uh, Baden at this time where I live, uh, was an, uh, a grand duchy. Uh, it was a very powerful state and uh, it was basically ruled by the uh, Grand Duke, Archduke, Archduke of Baden. Um, very rich guy. He was the cousin of the Kaiser. No, sorry, that's wrong. Can we cut that. He was uh, the brother in law of the Kaiser. 
So the Kaiser came to Karlsruhe a lot. They're, they're based in Karlsruhe, the, uh, the uh, Grand Duchy, uh, live in the palace in Karlsruhe, and the Kaiser would come down all the time. Um, only the best soldiers are accepted into this regiment, the 109ers, uh, which is based in Karlsruhe, and is basically sort of his personal uh, regiment. It's part of the 14th Army Corps, and it's stationed at the Western Front throughout the war. Um, an, an officer, Unteroffizier Rudolf Kessler, from our town, is an officer in this regiment, and his father presented us with lots of photos and memorabilia from the First World War. Um, also, uh, he gave us his boots and he gave us um, little chalk, um, uh, what do you call them? I don't know. <laughs> little chalk sculptures, uh, which he made from the, sh the chalk of Champagne, the Champagne area, the actual, what he took out of the ground. This is what he's sort of doing in the trenches. So apart from the regiments joined by the soldiers in our town, which is in the state of Baden, of course, or the Grand Duchy of Baden, which it was at the time, I also looked at some of the regiments from our neighbouring state of Rheinland-Pfalz, which is just over the other side of the Rhine. Um, and in the regiment's histories, I found a commander of the old Prussian school, an officer called Wilhelm von Hasi. Um, this, he was quite an interesting guy. He led several units from the Pfalz, the Rheinland-Pfalz, and he's well known, I believe, for his motivational manner and good leadership. This was what I found out by reading the regiment's histories. He looked after uh, quite a few regiments. Um, on September the 6th, 1918, I read in the regiment's histories. So at this point, the situation is very, very bad. So it's the beginning of September 1918. His regiment is the RIR5, and it's being disbanded to other regiments. And von Hasey tells them, hold tough and firm as you did in Furul Forest and go for it like you did at Dranueta. Then the victory will be ours, he says. So early September, he's still trying to infuse his men with the belief that if, if only they hold tough and firm, they can still win. I mean, this is, is a hopeless case by this time, but that was kind of the power he had over his, his regiments. Um, von Hasey is a colonel. He's already commanded the Bavarian Infantry Regiment Number 17, the Bavarian Infantry Regiment Number 5, and the Bavarian Infantry Regiment Number 18. This is because the Pfalz, although it is nowhere near Bavaria at the time, it belonged to Bavaria, which is quite far away. Uh, it doesn't belong to Bavaria anymore. But all of the regiments in the Pfalz were, were Bavarian. Um, and anyway, apparently, according to the regiment's histories, it's well known that when he takes over a regiment, a golden age begins for the men. Wherever von Hasey is in charge, it says, you know, you can count on his men being completely reliable. Somehow he manages to infuse them with incredible stamina and bravery so that they are able to hold out for much longer than normal in hellish circumstances. So yes, sorry. If, if we go to the beginning of October 1918, what are the German army units doing um, in terms of military? Are they retreating? Are they holding ground? And what is their mood and morale at the beginning of October? Right, so I really looked at their mood and morale at the beginning of October. And I think that the mood in regiments such as von Hasey's RIR 5 that I just mentioned is unusual because not every unit has such good leaders as von Hasey. Um, basically, the mood from the summer uh, from like the end of August when it's really bad through until October is in general very depressed. So for example, the pastor from our town gave me his father's diary as an example, 
which contains a very sad story from August 19th, 1918, which I wrote about on my blog. Um, this is, of course, the very worst time. So this is obviously preceding October a little bit, but this is showing you how, how depressed they were by the beginning of October. Um, the pastor's father is Private Karl Friedrich Bader, and in August 1918, he is stationed on the Western Front, as is everybody else. He tells the story of how they had to stand guard the whole night and every two hours during the day, with barely any time to sleep. In the early hours of the morning of August 19th, the lieutenant comes down to the front and he's completely drunk. So he's probably, I imagine he'd been drinking all night in one of the trenches behind the front trench, maybe, maybe the second trench or even further back the reserve. Anyway, he asks what the English sentry in the enemy trench is up to. And he says he wants to annoy him a bit. Thereupon he climbs up out of the trench and throws over two hand grenades to the direction of the English sentry. And of course, the Tommy right, throws some back at us, Carl writes. And he also throws over a few mortars. That would have been all right, but then somebody comes up from the back of the trench and says, Stahlknecht has just fallen. Stahlknecht is one of the soldiers at the back of the trench and one of the grenades that hit him. The lieutenant just shrugs his shoulders and says, sorry to hear that, remove him. But then he gets up on the edge of the sentinel and he shouts out, Tommy, go ahead and shoot. I'm standing right here. Obviously, he's feeling very guilty about Stahlknecht and he waves at the Tommy with a bottle of schnapps and shoots at him a few times, but the Tommy doesn't shoot back. Finally, he comes down and he goes, goes back and he sleeps off his hangover. Uh, Carl writes, thanks to such a brute, the best man sometimes loses his life. If only I could do what I wanted. Last night, I kept thinking the English would come and I was very anxious. Another personal story came to me from a lady in Ettlingen whose grandfather, August Goldschmidt, works as a chef in a local hotel before the war. He joins up to work as a kitchen chef at the front and he's stationed at the Western Front, of course. Well, of the whole time. He spends the entire war cooking in the kitchens at the front, but during the final phases of the war, he's eventually called up to fight. This is right at the end of September, 1918, and he falls on September the 25th. I mean, I don't think he had that much, you know, experience in sort of warfare because he's like cooking with his wooden spoon most of the most of the war rather than, you know, working with a gun. But anyway, he's buried at the military cemetery in Lille. Um, in the regiment's histories, Major Albrecht Richter, who I've mentioned before, writes that a victory now is completely, is absolutely no longer feasible. This is at the beginning of October. He says, the inner strength of the German army has collapsed in the face of a superpower of well-equipped and constantly refreshed enemy troops. This bitter realization, writes Ritter, set against the backdrop of the grueling impressions of the now four-year war, should now also undermine the confidence of the armed forces high command in the reliability of the troops. And at the same time, the regiment's history of the infantry regiment number 18 reports the losses in the battles weakened the fronts and the fixed will to resist in the face of the enemy's weapons became less and less. And it continues, in the homeland, an army of shirkers had managed to evade surface at the front. Everybody was reckoning with the end coming soon. They knew that negotiations were underway. So they're complaining about the guys who at this time are holding back at home, knowing that it's about to finish and trying not to get drafted to the front. So somehow a lot of people have managed to escape the draft. In his memoirs, The Return from the Front, Tor Kiefer, my 
my soldier right from the beginning, the one whose field post I read, he writes, service at the front was no longer honourable. In the back area, you were told, if you don't toe the line, you'll be sent to the front. Everybody was only after their own interests without any consideration for others. Everybody just wanted to get out without any problems. So how were political and domestic events in Germany uh, shaping the mood of German combatants in the front line? I'm thinking about their families, what was happening in their local town, and also political yeah. development at a national level. How did that shape their mood? Probably not very well from what, you, no, what you've well, indicated. Yeah, I mean, they weren't actually, you know, hearing a lot from the homeland. That, that was the problem. They, they had no way of hearing anything, really. Um, but in order to improve the mood at the front, the newspapers in the homeland was, was sort of using a bit of propaganda. Uh, and they, uh, at the beginning of October, they were still reporting on victories in the field. I mean, I don't know where they came from. Apparently, according to a Reuters report, the resistance of the German troops has strongly increased over the last few days. I think that was probably impossible, but this is the propaganda. And in an attempt to improve the move in the homeland, divisional pastor, Dr. Schulfer, who is at the front, obviously, writes in an article on October the 2nd, that the number of whining letters to soldiers at the front from the homeland has heavily increased, which is um, depressing the mood at the front. I mean, I guess that, you know, in the homeland, they're sort of just telling the soldiers in the field what is actually going on. But this this little bit of information that that is coming through is making it even worse for them. What we want you to forget at home is this rainy weather mood, writes Dr. Schulfer. It's good for nothing and it does a terrible amount of damage. Sunshine and cheerful confidence. That's what we have here at the front. And that's what we want you to have at home. The soldiers at the front, of course, they're not receiving much information about political and domestic events, apart from what is being written to them in these private letters. Of course, the circumstances in the homeland are now absolutely catastrophic. The people are waiting and hoping for peace. The Spanish flu is now in its second phase, having appeared again in the summer. And since 1915, food has been rationed. Many people cannot exist from the small portions, and they are doing what is called in German hamstering. I don't know if that's an English term. We talk about hamstering. We've been talking about hamstering for the last two years, actually, with um, COVID. So people have started hamstering again. They'll go out and they'll buy, you know, lots and lots of toilet paper or that's hamstering. (laughs) Anyway, um, so this in in this sense, in the First World War, this means not only hoarding supplies, but also buying goods directly from farmers. But the farmers are demanding extortionate prices for their products, as reported by Tor Kiefer in his memoirs. Not everyone has so much money, writes Tor, and the poor people are fighting for their lives. They go out at night and they dig out potatoes from the fields. Clothes are also being rationed by a new office called the Reichsbekleidungsstelle, which actually goes round to people's houses and confiscates or impounds what they consider to be superfluous clothes. These in turn are sold at selected clothes stores and people with an annual income of more of less than 3,000 marks are entitled to buy them there. At the beginning of October, the unwilling Prince Max von Baden from Karlsruhe in the Duchy of Baden is made Chancellor for one month. So Prince Max is the cousin of the Archduke of Baden. We're back to Baden, our little state here. Um, and uh, a the, the uh, Archduke has no children, so Prince Max is actually the 
uh, heir to the throne of Baden, as it were, to the heir to the Archduchy, the Grand Duchy. Uh, and um, he is very unwilling to become the Chancellor, but he becomes Chancellor for one month. He is also a cousin of Kaiser Wilhelm. Political events and national changes in Germany really take off a little bit later, at the beginning of November, when uh, so shortly before the, um, the ceasefire. So at this time, at the beginning of October, the, the political events are not so catastrophic as they are a month later. Um, at the beginning of November, you have the sailors' uprising in Kiel in an attempt to bring about peace more quickly, which leads to riots, strikes, chaos all over Germany. And this is followed by soldiers and workers' councils being formed. They take over the power, which culminates in the proclamation of the Republic and the abdication of the Kaiser, as well as the Archduke of Baden. Uh, but that's, that all comes in a few weeks shortly before the, um, the uh, ceasefire. So we've still got soldiers at the front. They're still fighting in many cases. What makes them carry on fighting and enduring in the trenches in October? Well, I think that nobody really wants to be there. And just about everybody is aware that the end is very near. Um, not everybody is enduring it or even staying. So in many units, there are major disciplinary problems. However, in some of the regiment's histories I read, some units dispute this. For example, a soldier called um, Joachim, that's unfortunately all I know about him, which is his surname. He's from Infantry Regiment Number 23 from Rheinland-Pfalz, for example. He later writes, well, we've barely heard anything about ceasefire negotiations or Wilson notes. Wilson notes referring to the notes that had been sent to President Wilson requesting a ceasefire. We also hear nothing of the collapse of our allies on the Balkans. But as long as das ganze Halt is not sounded, we soldiers will do our duty. We will remain soldiers, true to our oath to the flag. And I'm going to explain what the das ganze Halt is. This was originally a hunting signal consisting of two commands. The first is das ganze, which means everything. And the second is Halt, which means stop. So they put these two commands together to mean ceasefire. And on November the 11th at 12 o'clock German time, the two signals of Das Kanzer Halt were blown by the buglers along the whole line to signal the end. That's what, that's what that means. Um, and just a note here, if you hear the words Das Kanzer Halt together in German without knowing the meaning, it grammatically makes no sense at all. So that's why you have to explain it's two different terms that have been put together. Anyway, this, this soldier from Infantry Regiment number 23, he's, he's very determined and he says, as long as das Kanzer Halt is not blown, this signal is not blown, we will, we will remain soldiers true to our, true to our flag. Um, the Bavarian Field Artillery Regiment number five from Rheinland-Pfalz apparently also has no problems with discipline according to their regiment's history. Uh, Major Alfred Holtmann writes in the regiment's history to describe what officers, men and horses too have achieved in this last phase of the war is impossible. He continues, a regiment of heroes left the battlefield on October the 9th, not because it was defeated, but because an enormous superpower completely swept away our weakened line with their material. That's America, of course. Despite the strenuous retreat, however, not one case of insubordination occurred. All commands were followed scrupulously without a murmur. Such accomplishments could only be achieved through the discipline of our splendid army. The enemy never succeeded in turning our retreat into a flight. So to a certain extent, it appears to be the discipline of the troops which enables them to continue fighting, although this is definitely not always the case. 
Also at the beginning of October, the German newspapers are still calling for the fulfillment of duty to the utmost, whereas by the end of October, they're already discussing Austria-Hungary's forthcoming capitulation, Ludendorff's resignation and the note to Wilson. So from the propaganda point of view, there is quite a change in attitude throughout October. So I think you probably aren't answered this question, but the mood and morale of German soldiers at the end of October was considerably different from the beginning of October. And it well, sounds like it's, it was pretty poor. <laughs> yeah, it's much worse. Uh, so throughout October, things at the front don't change so much. But by the end of the month, anyway, there is an increasing number of deserters and even suicides in the trenches. Um, Tor Kiefer, my guy with the field post, writes that soldiers would disappear and nobody even bothered looking for them anymore. They would usually hide out at stations until a train came. Then they would board the train where they would remain hidden. Uh, by the end of October, many of the troops are refusing to fight. In one case, the previously motivated and so brave infantry regiment number 18, one of von Hase's regiments, there a part of the troops refused to fight after a storming by the Americans. According to Major Albrecht Ritter, around 70 men openly refused to advance, stepped out and escaped. Tor Kiefer writes that the food is now absolutely miserable. There is no more meat at all, the bread is bad, and the coffee is barely tolerable. Meals mainly consist of carrots chopped up and boiled in a big kettle, which the soldiers call barbed wire. It's a matter of luck, Tor writes to his family, whether the food can reach us at all because the kitchens cannot travel so far down to the front. Then we have to eat the iron portion, ship's biscuits and coffee brew from the field flask. All in all, the mood and morale is very depressed and demotivated. I have one other little story about a sculptor from Ettlingen, from our little town of Ettlingen, called Karl Albiker. He studies with Rodin in, in Paris at the turn of the 20th century, and he produces many of the statues located in parks around our town and in Karlsruhe, in the city. Uh, following the war, he also creates sculptures of soldiers for memorials, for example. Albica had joined up to serve in 1915, but in 1917, he's severely wounded when he falls from his horse. Um, and I found a letter to him, from him, written by him, to his friend Oscar Kiefer, who is also a sculptor, and older brother of Tor Kiefer. So Oscar Kiefer is a sculptor from our town. And the letter is dated November the 4th, 1918, just one week before basically the ceasefire. And he asks Oscar what he thinks the Europe of 1919 will look like. He says, nobody could have imagined that the end would suddenly come crashing upon us at such a speed. I regret now that I am not a lithographer. One could have at least earned one's living as a cartographer afterwards, he says sarcastically. There certainly won't be any victory monuments now. What a terrible world. Meanwhile, we wait to see calmly and with dignity what bridling yoke Mr. Wilson intends to impose upon us. So he's anticipating a defeat for Germany and that the Americans together with the other allies will be changing the European borders. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work? Well, I mostly write in German. So unless you're a German speaker, you won't be able to read everything I write about and research. I usually write one history article a week for the online newspaper of our city of Karlsruhe. And all the articles can be called up online. I've also written several longer articles for the newspaper of Rheinland-Pfalz called Die Rheinland-Pfalz. 
mainly about World War I and World War II themes. And in English, I've written several articles for the Imperial War Museum's blog. And of course, there's my First World War website, which is all in English. And that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.